Christ in Relationships is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his third message, Commissioning Us. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20, and it reads as follows. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come up to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's series, Christ in Relationships, and his third message, Commissioning Us. Well, we have a special treat this morning that the other services didn't get. It is so appropriate that uh, as I'm preaching on Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and going into all the nations, that we're going to have a representative of one of those nations come speak to us. Uh, I'm going to ask Dr. John Birnbaum to uh, come forward. John, uh, Dr. Birnbaum is a, is a part of the uh, American Christian, uh, American Russian Christian University, and he has a guest with him that will uh, give us some some moments of his testimony and connect us with the work uh, with our brothers and sisters in Russia. Good morning. The Gospel record tells us that when Jesus' family came to get him, when he was beginning his public ministry, Jesus said to those who were after him, those who do the will of my father are my mother and my brothers. So Jesus gave us a kind of a new understanding of the character of family. So when the Apostle Peter later talked in his, in his epistle about the family of faith as a holy nation, a chosen people, we got a new idea of the nature of the Christian family. So this morning, for a few moments, we're going to talk about the family of faith in Russia. God has done remarkable things in Russia, particularly since 1989. A nation that's gone through all kinds of revolutions, five different revolutions at the same time, a political revolution, an economic revolution, a social revolution, an ethnic revolution, and a spiritual and moral revolution. That's an unprecedented event in modern history, and God's allowed us to be witnesses to those events. And in the midst of all of those changes, God's family of faith is working away in Russia. I want to introduce you this morning to a candle of hope in Russia. In the midst of much confusion and much chaos, God's family of faith is laboring away to be disciples of Jesus Christ in a very difficult context. Dr. Alexander Zashenko is one of those folks. He's been described in a new book which has just come out entitled Candles Behind the Wall, a story of Christians involved in the communist revolution as one of the future leaders of moral renewal in Russia. So it's a real privilege for us to have some time with him. 
He's an economist by training. He was an economic advisor to Gorbachev. He was involved in the restructuring movement in the late 80s. He left the government in 1991 and established an association for Christians in business to encourage God's people to be about the business of carrying their vision for ministry into the marketplace. He's also created a group called the Society for Fair and Ethical Business. In addition to that, he has a 12-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son, preaches at the Baptist Church on the weekends, writes journal articles for economic news for an economic magazine, and loves Christ. So will you please greet Dr. Alexander Zashenka. Thank you very much, and you, John, also. Uh, let me send you a greeting from my church. It recently became uh, official church. Formerly, it was underground church of in Moscow of evangelical Christians. Uh, I know I've seen right now you're very exalted and joyful. Probably you have recently very good celebration of your Easter. Our Russian Easter is yet to come at the end of April, on the 1st of May. So we are different. We have different cultures. And uh, today I've seen young men, young people who became a Christian, who became a members of the church. Very interesting and very uh, open, very open reception. Adoption. Let me share with you a different kind of adoption to Christianity, which was my case. I was born in a non-Christian family. Nobody in my family, non-grandfather, non-grandmother, knew nothing about the Lord Jesus or God. Those Christians which remain in the country were isolated from the rest of society. We, we knew nothing about the Lord. It was prohibited. And the Christians were regarded as mentally retarded person. In one cases, or agents of American and Western imperialism. But uh, when I became a young, and probably the same as these, these boys, I probably put a question for me. Why I'm here on the earth? What is the reason? The question is powerful. It is eternal question to all generations. In all countries of the world, at all times. So, I should answer this question. I try these answers, and I have not found any answers. For long, long years. I became, when I became a student, I asked this question to my professor. It was in philosophy seminar. I asked him, what is the reason of human life on the earth? He told me, Comrade Zaychenko, please stand up. And students look upon him. He presented us an example of uncorrected question. You should never ask this question. Because it implies the idea of some transcendental values. Be seated, Comrade Zaychenko, can never ask this question in the future. And I never did. Uh, at the end of 70s, I had a chance to to get a Bible. It was the first Bible I ever had in my hand. It was uh, 
It was given me by my friend who smuggled it from United States. It was printed in Russian pocket size Bible and I started to read in my science as a scientist. At that time I was PhD in economics and uh, I started to read it from from the very beginning, New Testament, from chapter Matthew. I thought to myself, probably atheists were right. And they are right really because it's very dull and interesting book. And it's not very nice to read in all succession and very long succession all these Jewish names, who born whom. And uh, then I, I kept reserved and tried to follow, to continue reading. I forced myself. And when I reached chapter 4, and especially chapter 5, I understood that I met a familiar, something familiar to me. I don't know, it's like a forgotten things of my heart. I understood that these were answers for my questions. And I started, since then I started to read. And later on, right now, I understood that since that moment I became a Christian. The way I was baptized 10 years old, uh, uh, later. For 7 years I was looking for the church. I was... I haven't seen any living Christian. I was alone. Though I was working at that time in a very elite institute of Russian Academy of Sciences, the Institute of United States and Canadian Studies. I was senior research fellow. I was the only non-communist member of the institute. I was not allowed to go abroad to contact with the foreigners. I was allowed to work. To work hard and and for many hours. And I liked it, I enjoyed it. It was very interesting work for me. And uh, so I started to find what, what could I, what can I do? And I decided to find more information because there was only one Bible around me. And all information which was negative to Christianity. I came to the store, bookstore and found a lot of atheistic literature. It is called scientific atheist literature. I found a lot of information because we Russians, we are accustomed to read between lines. I found a lot of information. I found from this book and from Bible and I have chosen my confession. I have chosen, I found that the only confession I can find in this country for me right now will be the Baptist Confession, and I became a Baptist, but alone. There was no, even a person who will care for me, or taking care for me, or who would, who can follow me. So, I try to find a way, and uh, uh, I try to find some living Baptist. In this literature, I found that uh, these nasty uh, people, those who try to grab Russian. The Soviet souls to the bourgeois idealistic uh, mentality, they try, sometimes they go to the cemetery and try to console people after, after funeral. The people are mourning and they approach them and try to console and then start to speak about Jesus, about salvation. Be careful. Be careful, Soviet citizens, that they're, it's very dangerous. So, I, went to the cemetery. I wanted to be grabbed, but nobody did. So, 
it lasted for a long years. For a long years because if he is tall, it's very impossible to retain your Christian integrity and to remain your Christian vision if you are alone. If you are alone. And so, when I went to the um, Tallinn, it was a very interesting uh, business trip. I uh, was invited to the scientific conference. I found that the churches of the city were opened. It's Tallinn, it's uh, the Baltic the Baltic Republic. I found a lot of churches opened. And I rushed to one church, another church, third church. I spent all days at the churches, but not a single hour at the conference. Then I returned back to Moscow. I told myself, Alexander, you must be brave in Moscow as you've been in Tallinn. And find your church. I called to the uh, tourist agency which deals with foreigners, and told them in a brave tone, I am a senior research fellow of the Institute of United States and Canadian Studies, and there is a group of Americans who came here, and they are Baptists, and they want to attend Baptist Church. Please give me an address. <laughs> okay, okay, comrades. Just, I want only to, to check whether you are calling from this institute. Please give me your phone. I will call you back. And she did. I received this number, and in ten days I received, I found this church. I found this church, but a lot of months has passed when I, since I, I came, and only after that I have received the opportunity to repent and to, to confess about my belief. Uh, I, was decided, it was decided to, to, to baptize me later. There was no opportunity. Uh, my pastor told it was impossible to, for you to be baptized because you will be put on the list and be, this list will be given to the KGB agents of the church. So let's do it somewhere in another city. At that time I received my flat and he decided to flat, to baptize me in the flat. So in 19, 1985, me and my wife, we were baptized in my bathtub. <laughs> then I was from, uh, everything changed in my in life. I became, I have received a goal, a reason of my living. I understood the answer for this question. I was, became a famous as a, as a scientist. My pub, my articles were published all over the Russia and in Europe and in America, and I was invited to the government to be an advisor to the Council of Ministers of the USSR on Economic Reformation. I was invited and the Chief of Personnel's Department, uh, KGB Colonel, told me, Alexander, you must be very proud. You are the first admitted to the government with non-communist background. It's very, very big honor for you. And I thought to myself, probably you will be not so glad if you will be find them, probably I am the first Christian to be admitted. So, uh, God, God blessed me, my work, everywhere since then. I received a, a, a privilege to become a president of the Association of Christians in Business and the president of the Club of Fair and Ethical Business and some other Christian organizations. 
and we are Christians of Russia are doing work in order to to share to share with other people the truth about Jesus that he is here he is with us and he will bless those who love him we want we want to send this uh, to those who never heard about Jesus to the major, majority of Russian people through the means and levers which the Lord gave us give us that is through education through educating those who want to start the business for those who want to go to universities and to receive information we are now doing these things in Russia because the doors and windows of Russia are still open though there is a struggle some people some forces want to close these doors and windows sometimes they are now becoming to even uh, to be uh, closing but we are fighting and we are sure that the Lord will bless Russia as well he bless America thank you brothers and sisters Thank you, dear friends, for your warmth. I just want to add one little note. Brother Alexander is with us for several weeks to propagate the work of the family of faith in Russia. He's working primarily to help us develop a new Geneva study Bible, which will be a study Bible translated into Russian to help pastors and leaders educate their congregations and to help us establish the first Russian-American Christian university in Moscow, the first Christian liberal arts university in the history of the country. And if you're interested in those two projects, we have some brochures on the information tables outside uh, to, to tell you more about those two projects. Thank you, dear friends, for your warm greetings. Thank God you. bless you. Thank you. Well, let's just pause for a moment of prayer and, and pray for Alexander, our brother Alexander, and, and uh, the work in Russia, okay? God, thank you for your goodness. How marvelous it is to see your sovereignty and how you have lit a fire in a, in a little boy's heart to ask the questions of eternity and how without any available teaching you still drew him to yourself. Father God, how sovereign and how wonderful and how gracious you are. And we would ask that you would use him and those who associate with him to make the way not quite so difficult for the others in whom you have planted those same questions. We ask that uh, we could stand with them. We could be a part of their work and we could um, uh, understand that their ministry is parallel to what you are doing here, although it's very different. Father, thank you for your church and thank you for the people that you are raising up to become a part of your people, your called out ones. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you who have your scriptures with you, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 28, and I will give to you the second part of that chapter. Last Sunday we celebrated Easter, and we heard the first part. 
It's always of interest to me who we have left after the celebration and how much you have left after the celebration to listen. Because it must have been mind-boggling for the disciples to try to assimilate what had happened at Easter. Nonetheless, they found themselves going to a designated place where they knew they would meet Jesus. Even as you have come here today, with how much energy, we don't know. But here's how the scripture reads, starting in verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. Now, it's my, my opinion that they weren't alone. I don't see how these eleven disciples could assemble, walk all the way to Galilee, and not attract a following. There is some suspicion uh, that this may well be the time that the 500 gathered to witness uh, the appearance of Christ after his resurrection that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15.6. We don't know that. But my hunch is that there was more than just the eleven here. They proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Now that seems incredulous to us, that anybody could just stand there and look at the resurrected Jesus and doubt. But yet you must know the human heart. And you must know that if there's any space at all to doubt, some will doubt. No matter how much evidence they're given, some will doubt. And those who did not watch the crucifixion of Christ and did not see with their own eyes the resurrection will find a way to doubt. It's it's incredible to me that there are still some Americans who doubt that we ever landed on the moon. I can remember watching it on TV, but I can also remember to talking talking to Americans months after that who said, well, that didn't happen. Somehow they staged that in the desert. We never were on the moon. They're just trying to get money for NASA. Well, it amazed me. We have just commemorated the Holocaust. There are many people who continue to doubt that that ever happened. They believe that that's some sort of propagandist uh, uh, a conspiracy to raise sympathy for the Jews even though we know people who have come through it we've seen the pictures they still doubt so please don't be startled that there would be some who would doubt where there is capacity there will always be some who will doubt then Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth now this is quite an auspicious Um, introduction to a short speech he's about to give, isn't it? We remember uh, uh, Isaiah 9-6, the prediction of the coming Christ, and it said, and the government will be upon his shoulders. We know that uh, when it was uh, prophesied, Jesus would uh, uh, be born in Luke 133, uh, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so what Jesus is doing here is calling into himself the vision of the authority that he's been given to pronounce then the instruction that they have to do after the celebration. Here's the instruction. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, 
It would seem to you, would it not, that after this great celebration that, that the whole Christian movement would just explode just out of the sense of, well, Christian would want, Christians would want to just go out there the next, very next day and all during that week they'd want to tell everybody what they had seen in the resurrection. Let me ask you, is that what you did after Easter? Was that your natural inclination? Last week we saw, we felt, we experienced how, how Christ was resurrected. How many people have you told this week? No, it's not the natural inclination of people to want to go beyond their safe boundaries and to tell people about Jesus. And when Jesus called together the disciples, no matter how many were that, that day present, I can guarantee you that they didn't want to go out and evangelize any more than anybody else. They just wanted to stay there and tell stories about Jesus and hear more from Jesus. So therefore, not everything naturally expands as it grows or as it gets older. Many of you know I'm married to a biology teacher, and she always comes back with stories of these wonderful little creatures. I love wonderful little creatures. And she said, Hunter, I know you'd like to hear this one um, about the paradoxical frog of Trinidad. And I said, paradoxical frog. Now, there's a title. Where does that come from? She said, well, when they first discovered the tadpole for this frog. Now, the tadpole, of course, is the little beginning stage of any amphibian that, that then proceeds to mature out of that tadpole. When they first discovered the tadpole for this frog, the tadpole measured 14 inches. Can you imagine that? A 14-inch tadpole. Well, they were terrified. You know, they're thinking, how big is this frog? This sucker must be seven feet big. You know, <laughs> looking through the bushes, and it sucks you in. I mean, they didn't want to look for it very badly. But they did. They went ahead, they proceeded to painstakingly search for the adult form of what this huge tadpole had been. They found it. Inch and a half. It had matured down. It had gotten smaller. You know what? I've seen Christians do the same thing. They convert to Jesus Christ. Oh, they love God. They're going to change the world for Jesus Christ. And then they mature. They get smaller instead of bigger. They get calmer instead of more excited. They grow inward instead of outward. I've seen relationships do the same thing. How many of you started your marriage with, oh, we've got great dreams. We're going to change the world. We're going to, our kids are going to be fantastic. We're going to do great things for the Lord. And, and, and 20 years later, you're talking about how to pay the light bill or, you know, who cleans Johnny's gum off his shoes or whatever. And, and that's all you talk about anymore. Where'd the dreams go? You know, we're, we're that paradoxical frog. And so, Jesus, when he met with those people that day, knew he had to do something to order them to go out. Because it's not human nature to go out beyond your comfort zone. And so he went. He said, go, therefore. Now, this verb in Greek is really not a verb, it's a participle. It's in the aorist tense, it's in the passive mood. And, and, it, and it doesn't come off nearly as militantly as it sounds. I mean, it sounds like Jesus saying, go, and everybody's marching out in, in, in formation, and they're grabbing people as they go along and talking to them about Jesus in the face. No, 
The mood here is a much more passive. It's as you go. It's assuming that you will be scattered. And what he is saying is, as God sovereignly scatters you throughout the nations of the world, make disciples. We started a ministry here not too long ago called People of the World. Just to, just to befriend the foreign students in our land because many of them don't have American friends. Just to befriend them. Now their agenda isn't to try to work into a conversation Jesus. But they know that if they befriend these folks and they get in a long enough conversation, these folks are going to say, so what do you believe? What's your religion? And then they have the opportunity to share what they know of Jesus Christ. That's the sense of this verb. Go, and in your natural, everyday uh, conversations, you will have a chance to make disciples. Now, the make disciples part is the imperative. That's the, that's the thing where you become, he's saying to the disciples. You're the ministers. You're the missionaries. You make the disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or live or obey all that I have commanded you. Well, now, what's he doing here? He is saying that in order to have a healthy faith, in order to have a healthy relationship with me, you've got to become a minister. You've got to become a missionary. Now, you're thinking to yourself, what would be wrong with just sitting there and listening to Christ? That wasn't Christ's plan. You see, because the old teaching where you followed Christ around, the old paradigm had died and the whole new paradigm had been resurrected with a new Christ. Christ was in his new form. And he was saying, okay, here's the second plan. Here's the second part of plan A. I'm going to send you. Now, you know that the genius of many of the movements that have taken hold and have been of great help to people in this country have had a missionary spirit. For example, the Alcoholics Anonymous movement. That's not only good because it helps people in practical ways to face their own alcoholism, but the twelfth of those twelve steps is having this spiritual enlightenment, I'm going to go tell somebody else. I'm going to help somebody else. You know the mentality. Many things you will not do for yourself in order to improve your own life, you will do for somebody else. That's the genius of the missionary spirit. A drunk can say, man, I might not be much, but I can save another drunk. See? I can help him out. And so the genius of this is that you don't sit around and you don't think about, how, how i got to stay sober now. How can I stay sober? The genius is you go help somebody else out. And that's how you get healthy. That's how you mature. The same thing with, with, the, with many of the, the evangelical movements. John Wesley, when he, when he was, was too enthusiastic to preach in the Church of England, went out and preached in the, in the minefields to miners. They'd come out for lunch and John, old John would crawl up on a rock and tell them they were sinners. They'd beat him up. He'd crawl away, come back next day. Tell them they were still sinners, but Jesus Christ was the answer. He'd beat him up again. He'd crawl back, come back. Finally, they listened to him. And these miners who couldn't say more than three sentences without 17 cuss words started getting converted all over the place. You know what John Wesley did? He didn't sit there and form a church. He made them preachers. He said, now I want you guys to go out and preach to other miners. And they said, wait a minute. We, did, we just got our language cleaned up. We don't know anything about it. He said, look, you got the Bible, don't you? You become preachers. And there was a great revival in England. This is the Protestant principle. 
This is the reason we're not still a member of a church that says, look, there's only one guy that really knows the Bible, and we've got to learn it from him, and we're the receivers. No. The Reformation says we all have access to learn about the Bible, and we are not just the recipients of grace, we are the vessels of grace. We are the means of grace for other people. So that not everybody has to go through what our brother Alexander had to go through to hear about Jesus Christ. That's the principle of the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers, you see? And so when Jesus sent these people out, he was doing something tremendous for their relationships and tremendous for their faith, because in order to build faith, you have to give faith. You have to be a vessel that you transfer faith. And so that's how Jesus was saying, we get healthy. You understand that, that uh, well, let me go on to the next point. Secondly, what Jesus was putting down here was a paradigm for healthy organizations. You see, Jesus knew there was going to be a church. He looked at Peter and says, on you I'll build my church. He knew there was going to be a church. What was the character of that church? Was the character of that church just to gather? No, the character of that church was to be scattered yet associated. To be scattered yet associated. Why? Because the character of God, as we have known from the historic creeds, is to be both singular and plural at once. That's what we know from the Trinity, that God is both singular and plural at once. And so must his church be singular and plural at once. The reason we're made for relationships is so that we can be both singular and plural at once and reflect the nature of God. So what does that mean for a church? For our relationship as a church, one of the things that it means is that we need to go back to this original commission and understand that as we go into our normal relationships, we are still associated together, that the church is not some place that you gather, and it's not some body of people to be gathered. It is a group of ministers that are still associated even when they're dispersed. You've got to understand that Northland Church is not at 530 Dog Track Road. Northland Church is everywhere you go after you leave 530 Dog Track Road. That's Northland Church. Northland's pastors are not Joel and Dick and Vernon. Northland's ministers are you when you go. He sends you just as he sent them to be the ministers. How does the future paradigm of the church, how will it look? And what is the biggest mistake of the past paradigm that we've operated out of since Constantine became converted and the, and, the, and the institution of the church became patterned after the medieval hierarchy and the institution of the state? How will the church be different in the future? I believe we'll go back to the original church that was scattered yet associated. That we will not identify the church just with the gathered uh, people on one day a week. That is such an immature and such a stifling view. It doesn't matter how many people you can sit in your church. Last, last weekend we had well over 5,000 people. You know what that means? Almost nothing. Because it doesn't matter how many people you seat. It only matters how many people you send. That's what matters. That's where the accumulative effect of Christianity happens. Do you know that uh, 
a man named Cole, scientist, once wrote a book called Sympathetic Vibrations. It was about physics. And he said, he posed this question. He says, how do you hold a hundred tons of water in the air with no visible means of support? And he answered his own question. You build a cloud. That's what a cloud is. It's little individual drops of water associated together. A hundred tons of water in the air. It's a cloud. That's the image of the church. That's the image of Christ sending these people and multiplying all over. They were still associated. They might not all be one, but they were one in their separateness. I was reading a book this week called Leadership in the New Sciences. It's by a gal called uh, by the name of Melody Wheatley. And it talks about uh, the paradigm of quantum physics and what that means for organizational um, structure. Now, she's not a Christian, although if I had five minutes with her, uh, she doesn't know how close to the kingdom she is. But one of the things that she was saying was that the reason that organizations stay stunted is because we have associated control with order. And we think that in order to have order, we must have control. And that's why so many churches stay little, and that's why so many corporations stay little, because they don't allow the freedom that is inherent in the potential of their individual members. Because they're afraid it's all going to break up. Why do marriages fail? Because you spend so much time doing things together? No, usually because you spend so much time staring at one another. They implode, they don't explode. Why do families break up? Because usually the American paradigm of the family is either you've got one person totally in control, a matriarch or patriarch, that totally controls everything everybody does, or it just explodes and they don't really get together except for holidays. What is the other paradigm? The, par the other paradigm is that they just hang out and they have wonderful individual lives, but they love to stay together. That's the paradigm for the church. That's the paradigm for the church. She says, you know, we're so afraid of this chaos, but what we're learning in quantum physics is that chaos has patterns. And the patterns happen because there is what she calls a strange attractor. Well, we happen to know the name of that strange attractor, don't we? When Jesus said, and lo, I will be with you always, when he scattered them to the winds, he wasn't scattering them to go out into chaos. He would still form them into wonderful patterns God was working in his sovereignty for order that was masquerading as chaos, unity that was masquerading as multiplicity. And so that's how God builds, and that's how the church must build. Now let me tell you two things, and then, and then we'll get going. First of all, in order to do that, here's your follow-up order from Easter. We spent one of the most delightful celebratory times last weekend I can remember. I absolutely loved it. Have, I've had trouble touching the ground all week. I just keep playing that tape of the Easter music again and again. I loved it. But there's marching orders after the celebration. And we have two marching orders. First of all, I want to challenge every man, woman, and child in this congregation to be trained for ministry. 
I, I have a I have a guy teach a pastoral leadership at RTS, and I have a guy in my class said came up last week and said, Doctor Hunter, I, I I've taken out a half a dozen folks from my congregation and I'm training them for ministry, and and all the rest of the people are mad, not because they want to be trained for ministry, but because they just they don't want anybody to be trained for ministry. They just say, can't we just be Christians? You know, can't can't we just be disciples? You know, it's kind of like the Rodney King. Can't we just get along, you know? No. The point is that Matthew 28 says, you are a missionary. You are a minister. And if you're in the position of every time God gives you something to do, you've got to call up your pastor, that's not what he has intended for you. Every time somebody comes into your path, you've got to get them to your church, that's not what he has intended for you. That's not mature Christianity. I challenge all of you. We are coming up with a core curriculum that, that we will make available to all of you. I will challenge all of you to be trained for ministry. Now, I know that some of you are coming in hurting. And right now, you can't even, you can't even think about you know, taking that. You just need to sit and soak and heal. Go ahead. We don't do guilt here. But when you get ready, when God puts it on your heart, we want to train you for ministry because nothing less than that will extend you into the world as God meant you to be extended in your natural relationships. Now, I know, again, it's scary. But you do it even though you're scared. And if you know what to do, at least you'll be able to do it even though you're scared. Because sometimes God hands you a big emergency and you wish you had a pastor handy. And you look around and you go, oh, I guess I am the pastor handy. I, I was, I was, I'll just tell one little story. I was coaching when my kids were small, a little football team. Little second and third graders. First time they ever played football. And they, they were so cute in their little uniform. You know, they had little, little children playing little helmets on, you know. And, and the first thing we did is we taught every kid on that team what to do in case they ever got the ball. You know? Now, in regular fo- football, there's only two or three guys that are ever supposed to get the ball. But in kids' leagues, you never know what's going to happen. So here we are. We've taught every kid what to do in case they're going to get the ball. And, and, and when we're lined up for a kickoff, and, and the, the opponents are kicking to us, and here we are, all the kids are standing out there. And, of course, the first line of kids is always the blockers, you know, and the, and the ball's supposed to go to the running backs. Well, here's these first line of kids. And this kid from the other team comes up, un- got too far under the ball. He, was, he had a whale of a leg. Got too far under the ball, and it went straight up. And we're standing there watching this ball fly in the air, and I know which kid is going to catch this ball. He's never run the ball in a football game before. And it's just like you ever have those slow motion times of your life, you know? Everybody watches the ball go up. Everybody knows who's going to get it. And this kid knows who's going to get it. He's standing there like watching that ball. And I'm thinking to myself, what's he going to do? You know, any normal second grader would seeing 11 guys running straight at him full speed wouldn't even wait for the ball you know they'd turn around and run the other way but here's this kid waiting for the ball and he caught it and he paused for a moment and then he just ran like crazy got about five yards got smeared but he knew what to do and he did it he was scared but he did it and of course we all jumped around him and got him on, pat him on the back, way to run, that was the bravest thing. And he got me over to the side and he said, Coach. I said, what? He goes, I wet my pants. 
Well, it's scary. Scary. But if you know what to do, you can do it. See? Then the second thing I just want you to pray about. We, uh, you know, God's just doing something weird here. And we can't just keep, I mean, we'll build buildings, but we can't build them fast enough. And we can't be spending $25 million building some gargantuan building. So, so what we'd love to do as God grows us, we would love to organize into congregations. Now, not church splits, not church spinoffs. Congregations all over the Central Florida area. Because you know one thing that's missing? It's very intimidating to come into a church of several thousand people when most of us are used to you know, a congregation of a hundred or two. It's also very intimidating to go into a small group. I hope that all of you will get into small groups, but I know some of you are scared stiff because you feel like first time I go to a small group with ten in it, the leader is going to turn to me and say, okay, would you look up Habakkuk for us, you know? I don't know where Habakkuk is, you know? So it's very intimidating to go to a small group. But what about those congregations of one or two hundred? You see, we could have those all over the city. We could disperse, but yet still stay as a church. That's what the New Testament churches were like. Several thousand added in a day. They didn't have a big place to meet. But yet they still saw themselves as the church. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, First Church Corinth and Ebenezer Church at, at, at Bumby Corinth. It was, it was the church. Now... That is the way we can posture ourselves organizationally for the future. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have... Now, we'll still get together for worship. But wouldn't it be wonderful to have Northland in your neighborhood? Where during the course of your everyday conversations, you can say, let's go over to the church and, and play some pickup basketball. You know? And these don't have to be, you know, churches. They, they, can, be, they can be places we lease. They can, you know, they can be any gathering place for Christians. So that you are much more on the edge and equipped. You're dispersed into the world and equipped for ministry. Pray about that, would you? I wanted to give you a vision so that you can have input. We're just playing with these ideas right now, but I wanted you to have input. And if you got input, put it in the offering box. Sign your name, <laughs> but put it in the offering box so that we can have what you're thinking. What are the possibilities in something like this? And what are the dangers in something like this? Would you do that? as a part of your ministry training. All right. Now, pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful commission that you've given us to become missionaries, to become ministers. Thank you for the unbelievable confidence you have in us, more than we have in ourselves, that you would befit us to go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ to those who we already have a relationship with, and to minister when you give us the ball, so to speak. God, challenge us not just to be good Christians, but to be trained for ministry. And challenge us to throw away some of, the, some of the older ideas about a church being located at a certain spot, in a certain building, and that being the definition of a church. Retrain us, even as you did the apostles, to go 
and still be formed in all of that going into the church that exemplifies you in an individual life and in its gathering for worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have one more object lesson. We are not just going to hear the benediction. They're going to teach us to sing the benediction. And in that spirit, if you would listen once to me sing it and then listen as Eleanor and I sing it together, and then we'll ask you to stand and sing it together with us. He said to go into all the world, into all the world, in the name of the Father, the Spirit and the Son, to teach them what we know. Everything He's done And He'll be with us as we go And brothers, we must go for them And we must go for us And we must go for him he said to go into all the world into all the world in the name of the father the spirit and the son to teach them what we know Everything He's done And He'll be with us as we go Brothers, we must go for them And we must go for us And we must go Would you stand and sing this benediction with us? He said to go into all the world, into all the world, in the name of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. To teach them what we know And everything He's done And He'll be with us as we go And brothers, we must go for them And we must go for us and we must go for Him. Amen. Go in His peace.